It is the 122nd QuackCast. It is a gorgeous summer afternoon in August in Oregon. And so I am sitting out on the front porch. In the background, you may hear my wife, an obsessive gardener, chipper shredding. She also is from Minnesota and loves the movie Fargo. So if this is my last podcast, please check the mulch pile for my remains. This particular podcast is called Religion and Scam. I do not worry over much about being dead, although the process of getting there gives me pause. I have witnessed a few unpleasant deaths, and I hope to never see the Grim Reaper coming my way. One of the more awful and pointless deaths I have witnessed occurred early in my career. I had a patient with hepatitis C and cirrhosis. He had low platelets, low clotting factors, many of which are made by the liver, and a previously undiagnosed clotting disorder. He also had a mouthful of bad teeth, and they were removed all at once when he acquired some dental insurance. And then he started to ooze blood from his extractions. It was an ooze that did not stop, a constant trickle of blood that would not clot. After several visits to his dentist, he almost passed out and was sent to the emergency room. After four days, he had slowly bled out about half his blood volume, his hemoglobin having gone from 12 to 6. At this point, we geared up for transfusion of red cells and clotting factors. It should be a piece of cake to get this bleeding stopped. And then he let us know that he was a Jehovah's Witness and, thank you, he would not accept any blood products, or blood, period. For the next week, he continued to ooze despite all the interventions we could come up with to stop the bleeding, and he remained adamant in his refusal of transfusions of any kind, despite the approaching risk of death. At about a hemoglobin of two, he had a large stroke and severe muscle pain from ischemia. At one, he had a large heart attack and died. If you could rank deaths as pointless and horrific, this would be in my top 10. And his family accepted his death completely matter-of-factly. Jehovah's Witnesses, at least by that name, started in 1931 and began the doctrine of no transfusions in 1944 based upon two biblical verses. The first is Genesis 9-4 but you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood in it. And Leviticus 17, 10-14, I will set my face against any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who eats blood, and I will cut them off for the people. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves in the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. He's a pretty vicious guy. Therefore I say to Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may any foreigner residing among you eat blood. Any Israelite or any foreigner residing among you who hurts any animal or bird that must be eaten must drain out the blood and cover it with earth, because the life of every creature is its blood. That is why I have said to the Israelites, you must not eat the blood of any creature, because the life of every creature is its blood." Anyone who eats it must be cut off. I don't know. 
Sounds more like an admonition against stake tatar or vampirism to me. And Jehovah's Witnesses will accept some products derived from blood, but not others. For example, albumin. But the fine points and the splitting of hairs of doctrine have always baffled me and are perhaps better explained by Emo Phillips. I was in San Francisco once, walking along the Golden Gate Bridge, and I saw this guy in the bridge about to jump. He said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you, you silly ninny. He said, I do believe in God. I said, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too, Protestant or Catholic. He said, Protestant. I said, me too, what franchise? He says, Baptist. I said, me too, Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He says, Northern Baptist. I said, me too, Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He says, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist or Northern Conservative Reform Baptist? He says, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Eastern Region? He says, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. He says, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic. And I pushed him over. I am sure I'll get a takedown notice for that, and I'll have to edit it out, but I sure love that particular Emo Phillips bit. Several years later, we had grand rounds on transfusion medicine. The head of the bloodless surgery program discussed ways to avoid transfusions, and he kept using the word respect in relationship to Jehovah's Witness avoidance of transfusions. Respect, as in admire deeply as a result of their abilities, qualities, or achievements. No. Understand? Yeah. Except, you bet. Part of what makes America a great place is we all get to do whatever dumbass activity that suits us, like blogging and podcasting. But it is impossible to respect any belief that demands people to drip away their life's blood. Participation in scams may not occur in a vacuum isolated from other belief systems. There are a variety of ways in which religious beliefs can influence medical care. The deaths of children whose parents belong to sects of community that rely on faith healing is unfortunately a common topic in the newspaper. It has been known for years that relying on prayer as a substitute for medical care leads to a shortened life expectancy, the archetype being Christian scientists. JAMA published a study that looked at the outcome of 5,500 Christian scientists and compared them to a group of 30,000 controls who use reality-based medicine. There was an increased death rate of the Christian scientists when compared to the control population, a difference made more remarkable since Christian scientists neither smoke nor drink. The JAMA study confirmed an earlier study that demonstrated the death rate from cancer among Christian scientists was double the national average, and that 6% died from preventable diseases. Overall, being a Christian scientist led to four years less life for women and two years less life for men. I would wager there would be similar outcomes in any group who avoids science-based medicine in favor of the topics covered by this podcast. There are belief systems of individual sects 
which avoid medicine or aspects of medicine. And then there is the effect on whole cultures where religious ideas dominate. As an example, 13% of maternal deaths in South America are due to unsafe abortions, in part due to the Catholic Church's ongoing opposition of birth control and abortion. Similarly, deaths can occur in the West, as Ireland recently demonstrated when a young woman died from sepsis after a miscarriage. She was refused an abortion of her non-viable fetus because, quote, Ireland was a Catholic country, end of quote. There is a spectrum of influence from various faiths. Some people use their position of authority to make medical pronouncements that run counter to reality, but are not really part of official religious doctrine. For example, the Bishop of Mozambique said that condoms and antiretroviral HIV medications were actually manufactured to spread AIDS to Africans. And while not the official position of the Catholic Church, his comments have never been repudiated. Polio was on the verge of eradication in Africa and the Mideast, but then there was a resurgence, in part due to Muslim clerics who thought that vaccinations were a plot to sterilize the population and spoke out against vaccination. In Pakistan, they went so far as to assassinate those in charge of vaccination programs. Vaccinations can be an area of doctrinal contention, since acceptance or denial of vaccines depends on whether you wish to emphasize teachings that support helping and protecting each other, or focus on teachings where certain products are forbidden. You may, for example, focus on the body as a temple to deny a vaccine, but then ignore the part about stoning a disobedient child. I would wager that every parent occasionally wishes, however distantly, they could apply the Old Testament to their children. Quote, In multiple cases, ostensibly religious reasons to decline immunization actually reflected concerns about vaccine safety or personal beliefs among a network of people organized around a faith community rather than theologically based objections per se. Themes favoring vaccine acceptance included transformation of vaccine excipients from their starting material, extensive dilution of components of concern, the medical purpose of immunization, and the lack of alternatives. Other important features included imperatives to preserve health and duty to the community. Concern that the body is a temple not to be defiled is contrasted with teaching and quality control requirements in manufacturing vaccines and immune globulins. So often religious reasons for refusing a vaccine are probably being used to support a pre-existing anti-vaccine bias rather than a primary refusal on religious reasons. This was certainly the case of the polio vaccine in Nigeria. Quote, Detailed consideration of the Nigerian situation revealed that what was described as ostensibly religious objections and assertions that vaccines spread the HIV virus or were vehicles for sterilization programs masked deeper struggles related to political power, inadequate health service, and a controversial clinical trial of an investigational antibiotic. While the boycott was centered within Islamic social networks, most of the objections raised related to social issues rather than theologic issues. And of course, the issues surrounding the Catholic Church's opposition of condoms are not simple. 
and that AIDS misinformation is more than one bishop's crazy opinion. There are religious practices that have disease as a byproduct of their participation. Many infectious diseases are spread by crowding. Group A streptococcus and meningococcus among many. The Hajj, the mass visit to Mecca every year, is a classic example and a well-documented example of crowds facilitating the spread of contagion. Years ago, I was consulted on a patient with severe bloody diarrhea, and the stool cultures grew Eremonis, a waterborne organism. I asked direct questions looking for an exposure, and I discovered that she had a gallon of holy water, which she had brought back with her from a trip to Mexico, and she sipped a bit each day. We cultured the holy water, and it grew Eremonis as well. Holy water? I sometimes want to say, holy water, Batman. Holy water is often contaminated with bacteria, and as a result, I hypothesized that Pasteur went to hell, since if he went to heaven, all the water would be clean. Quote, Our aim was to assess the microbiological and chemical water quality of holy springs and holy water in churches and hospital chapels. Of the holy springs investigated, only 14% met the microbiological and chemical requirements of national drinking water regulations. Considering results from sanitary inspections of the water catchments, no spring was assessed as reliable drinking water source. All holy water samples from churches and hospital chapels showed extremely high concentration of HPC, fecal indicators, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, and Staph aureus occurred only in the most frequently visited churches. Ew. And there are well-documented instances of holy water being a source of infections both in the hospital and outside of the hospital. This is part of the reason that some churches have installed hands-free holy water dispensers. There are other infections spread due to religious rituals such as herpes and ritual circumcision. There are at least 22 cases of newborns acquiring herpes as a result of circumcisions. Quote, Ritual circumcision has three parts. The mila, or excision of the external prepuce, the peria, the slitting of the inner foreskin, and finally the metziza, or the sucking of blood from the wound. This originated in 5th century Babylonian Talmud where it states metziza should be performed so as not to bring on risk although what the risk is, is not explicitly stated. Historically, if the mohil, I'm not pronouncing my Jewish terms well, I am certain, failed to perform the metzizah, he was barred from performing future circumcision. During metzizah, the mohil, M-O-H-E-L, sips wine and applies his lips to the involved portion of the penis and then spits the wine into a receptacle which may be repeated until hemostasis is achieved. Direct oral genital suction was commonplace until the 19th century when Rabbi Moses Schreiber ruled that an instrument such as a glass pipette could be used as an interface between the mohil and the infant. I mean, really, can you say, ick? This is not a form of hemostasis I would recommend in the operating room. But if the practitioner of the circumcision has HSV-1, cold sores, 
which are usually shed all the time, whether or not you have an active lesion or not, you spread it to the child who then gets HSV-1 encephalitis, which is a bad thing. Hindus can get cutaneous larvae migraines, a dog or cat tapeworm that wanders the skin after inoculation, causing an intensely itchy rash. They do this from an act of penance known as a side roll, where they lie on the ground and roll in the same path that their icons had previously walked. Quote, For the comfort of the participants, the local government ships in sand from coastal areas and waters the sand twice daily to keep the dust down. Most of the cutaneous larva migraines I have seen have been in tourists returning from the beaches of Asia, where they lay in the litter box, well, actually, the sand of the beach. The sand of the beach is often the toilet for many animals, like dogs and cats, and with it, their parasites. So truck in some fresh sand for your complete with cat or dog tapeworm, and you can give your penitence a very itchy rash. And there have also been a few cases of primary amoebic meningoencephalitis after ritual ablution where the amoeba was introduced by washing the sinuses with contaminated tap water. Behavior and risk is never simple. The more I try and understand the motivations for behaviors that lead to the disease, the more complex and curious I find them. Of course, many human behaviors, besides religious behaviors, are associated with infections and diseases. No, make that all human behaviors. It is why I am so much fun at parties, constantly pointing out the infection associated with a given behavior. And that ends the 122nd QuackCast. Talk to you later. Bye.